Welcome, Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the podcast that gets deep into the psyche of extraordinary achievers across all genres, cutting to the chase to unlock the secrets of their success, their achievement, philosophies, and motivations. Join us in the quest to find out what makes the movers and shakers of our world tick and what gems of wisdom we can learn from them. Now, over to your host, Lisa Tamati. Well, welcome to Pushing the Limits, and today we have a, a very special guest, Philip Barmer, who is Director of uh, Hospital Services at Middlemore Hospital in County's Manukau region. Um, Philip is taking some very precious time out of his day. He is uh, the Director of Services up there, but he's also been the Chief Operating Officer for the Bay of Plenty District Health Board in the past. Um, he was also Chief Operating Officer for in, the, in Qatar uh, for the Orthopaedic and Sports Medicine Hospital that he helped um, commission and plan. And he's also got a degree in Business Administration, a Master's in Business Administration, and a Bachelor's degree in Human Physiology from uh, Victoria University in Wellington. Now, Philip is someone whose career in the health industry uh, spans over 33 years, and he has had a lot of senior roles and senior management roles. And he's someone that I met at a, a Distinguished Alumni uh, Award evening and I was very, very taken with uh, his approach to management, with his open-mindedness, with his um, w the way he manages people and the way he he is open to collaboration and and um, has a very open-minded view in regards to his management. So I thought he'd be absolutely wonderful to have on the show to give us a bit of an insight what it's like in the hospitals in New Zealand, how the systems operate, what goes on behind the scenes, what sort of challenges we have up ahead. We, we covered a whole raft of areas uh, around rehabilitation, spinal injuries and the like. And also, you know, just gave us a, a really good insight into what goes on behind closed doors, so to speak. So now it's over to Philip Barmer. <laughs> well, welcome to the show and nice to have you here um, talking to us today. Um, Philip, can Thank you... Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, sorry. Can you give us a little bit of a background, Philip, on um, your, your, your career, your, your education, and most importantly for me is your, your times overseas and what you've done and, and where you are now? Sure. No, that's great. Um, uh, my um, time probably reflects a journey from high school where um, uh, was very much in the cruise mode from being captain of the first 15, head prefect, uh, and seemed to be able to achieve academically uh, without too much effort. Um, went to university and uh, applied myself to a very limited degree, but didn't get the results to reflect that. Uh, so my ambition at that stage was to get into medical school. Um, I progressed on. I went and did my nursing training uh, and also did a degree in physiology and biochemistry. Uh, I then went on to uh, work in the US uh, in a cross-section of um, Hollywood, um, Beverly Hills and South Central Los Angeles, wow. which <laughs> had um, a breadth of uh, exposure that I hadn't really come across before um, and um, uh, carried on um, in uh, a, a number of different capacities, went to work in uh, the Middle East uh, in the UAE and Abu Dhabi and ran uh, the busiest uh, hospital in um, whole of the UAE and we had uh, uh, lots of high-level complex cases coming in, um, and it was for expats and for the local community. Uh, went on from there to um, work uh, in a number of um, senior management roles within New Zealand, and uh, uh, then back to uh, working in uh, Qatar with a sports um, uh, uh, hospital, uh, which was linked with the Asian Games and had high-performance uh, athletes juxtaposed with um, uh, run-of-the-mill patients uh, oh, and wow. then um, came back and uh, worked um, in between there I missed out uh, worked with Harvard and setting up a um, world-class health service with uh, 
Delhi with a company called Max India, um, and I was there for two years, and we commissioned uh, five hospitals while I was there, and uh, they're still going strong. Um, and have um, uh, been um, back in uh, work, worked in management roles within Australia, uh, running private hospitals, and then back to uh, Bay of Plenty, and uh, currently counties uh, working in uh, chief operating officer roles in, in both of those two uh, organisations. Amazing! That's an incredible. Um, that was an incredible mouthful, really, <laughs> and quite a and quite a not lot. As, to go not, as, not as challenging as yours, Lisa, but um, <laughs> oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I've had I've had my challenging days. I must admit. I'm, yeah, must admit. So, and and at the role that you're in now, you have about six thousand people under you. Is that right? Yeah, about seven and a half. Um, oh, it's uh, grown. It's, yeah, so <laughs> that's and that's so that's within your direct responsibility. Um, so the whole explain a little bit about your 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 day to day. What does it look like? Um, the way um, the um, funding works within healthcare is, and it's a very good system, much I think better than uh, many of the other health systems that I've worked. Um, we are given a bucket of money. Um, uh, it's never enough, uh, which is for counties roughly about one point five billion dollars. Um, and a component of that is to run hospitals and a component of that is to fund a range of um, services, including supporting primary care, um, the uh, pharmaceutical um, uh, prescription subsidies, residential care. Um, the benefit of having it is um, one lump sum is that if you are able to keep people healthy and well um, and active and enjoying life, uh, then the ongoing costs for you and looking after that population is reduced. So it means that you think a lot more broadly than just sick people and whether they turn up to hospital. So you can so think of it more of a, a preventative sort of a role rather than rather than just the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. That's right. So we've worked with other government departments in um, uh, insulating housing. Uh, we've oh. worked around um, uh, certain um, uh, support within schools um, uh, in uh, helping to uh, grow um, uh, opportunities in workforce uh, and to see people who come out on the other side with uh, scholarships and mentoring programs and then ultimately have them turn up as um, doctors, nurses, physios working in your hospital. Wow. Um, so, so part of that's been in partnership with um, uh, Key. Um, Stephen Tindall has been great, the foundation. Uh, and um, there have been uh, Westpac, um, Mana Kids, Mana Ricky. Um, there, are, there are a range of things that we've been doing within schools that have um, uh, uh, helped uh, the community and support um, computers. Um, uh, and it's uh, quite a nice place to be, which is broader, as I say, than just thinking about sick kids and they just keep coming back. Yeah, yeah. So you're able to – so how do you keep abreast of such a, a huge – portfolio if you like or or uh, so many areas to keep a control of so how is your management sort of um uh broken down if you like but the way it works is there's a ceo who works for a board uh the board um has representatives from the community and then has the, the composite representative uh, a, a portion from the minister so they'll look at skills uh, whether it's in finance or legal or whatever mm -hmm. and so the board is um, uh, designed to ensure strategic direction and uh, align with national um, uh, priorities, um, uh, Ministry of Health priorities, uh, and also to work in collaboration with other government sectors. So that gives us a, a sort of a framework uh, to work within. Mm -hmm. And then within that, we develop annual plans uh, around key areas of priority, whether it's for the local DHB or whether it's um, with those national ones. And um, uh, that then is where the, the money flows in terms of um, leading change. And uh, uh, then you are tasked with uh, working with clinical teams to make sure that um, everything you do is um, what I describe as the value equation, which is um, the cost, um, uh, the outcome is as good as it possibly can be. Uh, patient experience is as good as it possibly can be and the cost is as low as it possibly can be. And so counties, we do well on um, 
many of those measures. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think it's um, so because we've got a really dedicated clinical uh, team um, and they really are committed to the community. And uh, so we would be sitting first or second on um, many of the metrics uh, within um, that, that value equation in terms of cost or in terms of those other component pieces. Compared to the rest of the country. I mean, yours, would be, yours would be one of the biggest um, areas of responsibility, wouldn't it, in, in, in the entire country? Yeah, so out of that 150, uh, there's roughly about 750 million that gets allocated to hospital services. Yep. Um, but my job is to try and do myself out of business. Um, so uh, <laughs> a lot of the work I do is with, with the primary community teams and say, you know, if this person who has had a stroke, if we treat them quickly enough um, and uh, get the right sort of rehabilitation in place, um, that person then can go back and live more independently in their own home. Uh, or if we have a person who's got chronic disease, about 40% of our admissions are people who have a disease that you're not going to cure. Um, so what you're going to do is you're going to manage the symptoms. So congestive heart failure might be an example of that. We have one in five patients come back every 30 days um, oh, wow. and get readmitted to hospital. And uh, we spend somewhere in the order of about six and a half million um, and uh, about, uh, in terms of the number of patients, about a thousand patients a year. Now, if we can help those patients to understand their condition better, and if we can help those patients to understand their medications and know when they're getting unwell, who they should call, all of that's designed to um, uh, will actually keep me out of business. Um, so, uh, the national government, just well, the ministry just recently have developed uh, a set of uh, measures called system performance. Um, and it's great because it's much more focused on um, the forwards and the backs of the rugby team. Mm -hmm. um, you know, are the forwards doing their bit and, and how, how are we getting on with the um, what the backs should be doing and uh, how can we play better as a team? So that's, you know, GPs and nurses and um, pharmacists in the community working much more closely with hospital. Um, and again, we can see... Uh, the biggest cost for us in health is um, acute bed days and uh, doctor's visits. Um, so if we can do things in other places and in different ways closer to where people live, um, and so we don't design health services for us, but we design them for patients, um, then that's uh, a good outcome. So a good example, I would say, is chemotherapy. Yep. We could say everyone should go to central Auckland, um, but if we want to make a difference for our community, then actually we need to start uh, growing a local service where um, someone who has to come in for 20 um, uh, treatments uh, feels that they can and it's not going to be a big burden to them. Uh, and if they feel that they can, then they're much more likely to get treatment. So that's empowering uh, the regional areas basically outside of the central. That's uh, right, yeah. Trying to get things um, uh, set up as close to where people are. And that's the national strategy in terms of what they're wanting to do. So, so within that, um, I have divisions, I have people responsible for surgery or medicine or um, older people or mental health, and they have um, within their structure a doctor, a nurse, a allied health professional, um, they have business people. And um, so you run it very much like a corporate, you know, what's your investment return, but you don't necessarily just look at your dividends on um, because uh, yep. there's ne never anything much left over. Um, but you really talk, talk about what's the benefit to uh, people, benefit um, to community, and, and long-term, uh, are we changing the way uh, people live and, uh, and enjoy their lives? So the system integration interests me, The um, because you, you, you get your services and you get your primary caregivers, uh, you know, your primary health um, organisations, your GPs and so on, and then you got your people in the... So the specialists that are out in the community and the specialists that are in a hospital, is there a conflict of the feeling that I've had in the last couple of years dealing with um, hospital services? There's a bit of a, uh, a gap in communication often between hospitals and the community um, side of things. Yeah, I think a gap exists um, uh, um, between care providers and between care, provi care providers and patients. So the example I would use is um, we treat people in our emergency department. We have about 115,000 people who turn up every um, year. Yep. Um, and uh, many of those people would come back multiple times. So um, there's a story we have, but there's many people like this um, called George who um, came back to our emergency department. 27 times. Uh, we spent um, 
somewhere in the order of about uh, $128,000 um, mm. for him in hospital. Um, and we all felt like we were doing a good job over uh, a two-year period. When we really looked at what was happening was we were telling him to treat him when he got, was in hospital. He felt better. We sent him home with his prescription, which he couldn't afford. Yep. He was a solo father with five children, and he uh, wouldn't um, uh, go and get the medication. He prioritized the needs of his children over himself. His children, meantime, are not going to school, uh, and they're looking after him because he's so sick, and he can't get a job because he has so many sick days, mm. uh, and then he doesn't have any money. Um, and so, Vicious we cycle. Were, so we worked on what we describe as the um, high user uh, front door initiative, uh, which said, let's understand the problem. We got support workers, Māori Pacific, uh, in this case Pacific, um, who went out, looked at what went on, saw that there was a problem, said, we'll give you subsidy for your medication, we'll help you in terms of getting your treatment. And the great news, you know, end of that story is that um, uh, the uh, both children have gone on to leave and graduate and go to university, um, and uh, and he's carried on with a full-time job and um, uh, a better quality of life. So the gap between us and the patient was, well, we gave you everything you needed. We told, told you what to do. We didn't really understand what was going on. Mm. I think the bigger question we have from our patients is, um, why do I have to go in and tell somebody the same thing five different times? Exactly. Uh, yep. You know, when, uh, why can't you just look up my notes? Why can't you, uh, when you say someone's going to do something and it never happens, why is that? Yeah. So yeah. the top of the list in, our, in the patients in terms of their experience has been better coordination. They would like to see that between hospital and community and the other way around. And they would also like better communication. Um, uh, so, you know, do we provide time for questions? Do we allow... Um, uh, make it easy for people to understand what, how to do the right thing. Or um, And uh, I think we don't always um, make uh, the effort to try and join the dots. Uh, and, and so that's, you know, things that we're working on at the moment. Um, uh, uh, so we have, so I'll use stroke as an example. We have a hospital-based team. We have a community-based team. And so the plan of care should be um, to... And spinal would be another area to go from hospital um, to community, ongoing, and we've got reablement, which is like rehab in people's homes. It says, let's get the person to a place where they can live and be, and be more independent and how all that works. Um, and, and let's make sure that we hand them back to the GP uh, for ongoing care. What we have is we have a phone system so the GPs can call up. We also have um, monthly meetings with our clinicians in the hospital. We're going to talk to people in the community, and um, they'll discuss complex cases that GPs are struggling with. Um, and so then the specialist cardiologist or di endocrinologist, diabetes doctor, uh, can um, have a discussion around, well, what, have you tried this? Um, so as much as possible, you know, playing as a team rather than getting someone had to uh, you know, carry the full load. Yeah, because that's what I mean in, in our case and just thinking of a recent case with my mum, um, we, we have often come up against we don't know where to go in the, in the road for the next step or um, the, the, the communication between the hospital or who is actually responsible for her when, who can I ask for help from. Um, and this is, you know, in a, in a family that's obviously got we're good advocates for, for her. Um, how does that play out then with people who don't have the advocates, don't have a family, a strong support family? Um, that worries me. Or, or um, another thing that worried me considerably in uh, what I've experienced is older people um, who, do, who once again didn't have that support behind them. Do you think that there's, and this is getting a little bit off topic, but do you think there's an ageism problem within the, within the health service? Is there such a thing, or is it um, just more of a perception that once that you are over sixty-five, there's you know there's less in the bucket to go around, and you, you don't necessarily get everything that you could otherwise get. I mean, we'd like to think that we're all objective about what we do, and we are committed to give, delivering you know quality care to every patient that comes in. I think that um, uh, within the uh, studies that have been done they've shown that what is offered to someone who's young and male and potentially white it may be quite different to what's to what's offered to somebody else um, and so the challenge within this is to um, develop the system so that everybody every time 
uh, gets the right care. Yeah, quality, yeah. Um, and I do think um, uh, the uh, goal that the people have in terms of where they want, you think, well, um, they'll choose their own goals and we'll help them achieve it. Often those goals are shaped by um, what professionals are saying, you know, well, can yeah. you get there? Will you get there? Um, you know, just accept where you are. And I do think hope is a really is an important gift. Um, so it's a tension between trying to man- manage an expectation around what's realistic yep. um, versus the opportunity to give someone hope to um, see where they can get to. And I, I, th- I think, you know, um, with rehabilitation or with um, helping people recover from injury or a range of things, um, in anything like you, it's about achieving people's potential mm. um, and giving them the right opportunity to realise that potential. And so you think about, well, what's key? Actually, we're having someone who's there to cheer you on, family support, having someone who's there to help you figure out how it all fits together and with some technical expertise. So what we've found is having care coordinators and some of those um that's um, a, a support worker or a specific person, they may be involved with that family or whatever for the next um, uh, year, mm. um, just with ongoing contact and follow-up and support. Uh, the other one is, is peers, you know, people who are going through similar things um, and we, often untapped uh, around getting people to link in with the support group um, of others who have been through something similar. Um, but I also think we can do a lot more work. Um, I was... In the middle of Auckland, it was raining. I didn't know where I was. I put on my Google Maps and I could find my way home. No time, no problems. Uh, you know, why can't healthcare be like that? Why can't we create uh, journeys of where's the urgent care centre close? So we've got some semblance of that. We've got Healthline. Uh, we've got advice. But actually, there are other options we're looking at, which would give people, uh, you know, an understanding of what's what's close by. Uh, when is it open? Um, and... Um, how to access it. How to access it. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, some, some of the things we've experienced have been fantastic. You know, um, some of the um, occupational health uh, support services and that sort of thing have been absolutely marvellous out in the community. Um, and you're in a different area, obviously. Things run differently. Um, but, yeah, I think what what is, was important for us in our journey is that feeling of hope. I think that's a, that, that um, maximum potential. That's a, that's a key word, I think. Uh, in, in rehabilitation processes, what if, I mean, just coming from a coaching background, if I believe in the person that I'm coaching, if I believe in them, if I, if I enable them, if I um, give them the, the, the drills to do and help them and cheer them on and, and that they, they're going to go further, then, you know, like you said, it's, uh, managing that expectation about what is possible and what isn't, um, but like we came up a couple of times of you won't reach this, you'll never do that, uh, and have proven that wrong in in this case. Um, and I think that's that's an area that that could well do with some development in, in that um, promoting that support uh, and that that in support of the family that are looking after the sick person or the injured person in in their recovery and thinking outside the square too and just pushing the pushing the boundaries of of what is possible and going for it has been a, has been a crucial in our sort of journey for sure yeah i think people um when they're sick and tired and um at a low point when the major things happen it's um a not surprising that they really haven't got the energy they haven't got a sense of mm. um of hope and they feel uh, prepared to give in and um uh, that's uh where we can say well that's what they want but actually um uh, when we instilled so somebody who was looks after patients a medical oncologist said to me look i i can pretty much give people advice as to tell them what they should do and most patients will, will trust me and you'd want that and go carry on with you know what i've directed if we're managing expectations based on you know our perception of what's available and what's achievable then um uh, we may sell people short so um and that's why i come back to you know why we want to set up the rehabilitation center and uh for spinal patients in south auckland why we want to work with parafed and have uh, Olympic athletes who are um, 
Brilliant. Uh, standing so, next door, so alongside, you know, working so. out of the gym, because um, it's all about thinking. Uh, where could I be? Where you know, lifting your eyes and looking up and going, what, what's where could I? What's the potential? I think that's um, a, that's a really powerful um, comparison. Like to have that in in one area. Um, just for you know, once again, going back to a bit of an example here. Um, when I took mum out of the rehabilitation programs at the hospital, we, well, we finished there, and she she was actually back in the gym, in the public gym. Um, her her demeanour changed. Her approach to things changed because she's in, she's she's just one of the gym goers. You know, she's one of the people out there training and getting fit. She's one of rather than being the invalid, the the the, the victim, the the poor one, the one that's in hospital. You know, you know that change in mindset that comes with being surrounded by positive. Uh, going forward people who uh, are just all going about their, their daily things. But I, I found that as a, a really powerful uh, inspiration. You feel like you're back, you know. You feel like, yes, I'm back, I'm doing it. So tell us a little bit about this the centre that you're, you're planning because it sounds yeah, really I mean, exciting. Wayne, Wayne Gretzky, who was the um, uh, Stanley Cup winner, um, he's a uh, was an ice hockey um uh, player as, as hockey as the Canadians say to me um, he uh, was short, he was slow uh, and nobody wanted to pick him for their team um, he went on to win five times Stanley Cup winner and uh, achieved uh, the highest goals and MVP so many years in a row wow. uh, and his motto was you miss 100% of the shots you don't take um, <laughs> and so if you don't try and I think that's the thing around people recovering from uh, whatever illness um, disability, uh, you give it a try and you find it can't happen. You try it again and you struggle, uh, and then you get you. The idea of um, uh, accepting your limitations is something that you certainly haven't done, Lisa. And I no. think it's really key for people uh, as they're making recovery, recognizing that it takes time and it takes perseverance. Um, so what what we're doing at the moment is we're we have a spinal centre, and um, uh, there are two um, spinal units in the country. Uh, counties is one, and so if you have any impairment, um, uh, you'd be transferred uh, pretty much from Taranaki North, um, across to Hawke's Bay, um, and um, and then the others would move down, would go down to uh, Christchurch. Yep, um, And so we, our goal is to, um, uh, you can have a major spinal injury, and you may have no feeling. Um, you can get operated on before the swelling starts and nerve damage occurs. You can walk out the next day. Now that's not the case when you've got major injury um, to the spine and uh, nerve involvement. But the real key is to decompress that spine and get them up. So um, right. we've we've um, worked really hard on trying to get working with the ambulances and the trauma uh, networks to get patients to be. In the past, they used to potentially be transferred to the local hospital and then they'll contact and uh, mm. they'll wait. Um, so we our goal is to get surgery done within 24 hours, wow. and we're sitting you know at the right level and we're getting the patients brought up. Um, and the next part on from that is really good care, so they don't end up with lots of complications. And so we've got um, ICU and uh, a specialist team within the hospital. And then once they've been through that, then you move out the other side. Um, and ACC were a great partner in this. ACC figured that if you look at what we spend on someone for their life, if you're an adult, it's probably about 8 million, 16 million if you're a teenager uh, in terms of the cost to ACC for that injury. Um, so, so if you can um, put the right level of care and the right rehabilitation, the right level of independence, um, you know, so what we have is a very old um, spinal unit. And when we became the national um, centre in 2015, um, uh, we already had a large chunk of patients coming to us. Um, we saw the demand go um, up. So um, we've uh, had a full spinal unit. Uh, and we are now progressing to have a more integrated rehabilitation unit, which would be um, stroke and spinal. And um, uh, we also have the plastics unit in um, South Auckland, which mm -hmm. is the regional mm -hmm. unit. Um, and with trauma, um, often it requires an orthopedic surgeon and a plastic surgeon. So putting legs back together, arms back together, um, is what the clinical teams at Counties does. Wow. And also we have burns um, uh, with the National, Spinal, National Burns Unit. So all of that means that you've got people who have fairly traumatic events, um, but potentially could have a really um, full and rewarding life 
if we do our part. Um, so, um, and that is uh, the Full Monty um, supporting them. Um, there's some research that's been done recently around uh, pressure areas and uh, spinal patients. And um, you're talking um, tens of millions of dollars um, for uh, patients who aren't um, supported in their own home and have complications after that. So uh, I'm quite impressed. ACC is saying, look, we need to think about lifetime support well, and how we can um, yeah. support you to deliver quality care, not just when they're in hospital, but also ongoing. Um, so the whole there's a whole big shift by the sounds of it that, that the ACC and the government and the hospitals are starting to think more preventatively or what the long-term costs of these you know, injuries or, or these chronic illnesses are going to be as a load on the, on the society in future. Would that be right? Yeah, ACC have moved much more to an actuarial model. So, you know, if I'm looking at the life insurance payout on somebody, um, it's going to cost me X. And so they've got quite good comparisons now, not just on how many claims, but what's the lifetime cost of that claim uh, and broken it up by different sporting uh, injuries, uh, by different, uh, you know, accidents, whatever. And so what you can do is you can then say, well, you know, what do we do about that? How can we change that cost? Uh, and that's something which... Um, if you have the right um, broader approach and you're able to do that. And so it's, um, I think, I think within the model of care, certainly within Australia and also the States when I was there, you get paid um, um, on activity pretty much. Uh, and so the incentive is just to um, uh, do everything you possibly can, but not necessarily always to think about how do you um, uh, lower the cost or, you know, think, quite differently about right. how you've done that. So an example I would use would be our orthopedic surgeons have sat back and said, um, look, you know, not every patient who has a sore back needs to come in and have spinal surgery. If we had physio, we could actually get them to um, do some work. Or shoulder injury doesn't need to have an orthopedic operation straight away um, mm -hmm. if they had the right sort of therapy. And so for us, we think if we do less operations, that's a good thing. Yeah, um, totally And that's what, you know, DHPs have been tasked with. So, yeah, I think so. Um I think we've got to recognise that we are looking at a huge demand growth um, and, you know, one in five dollars in the US is spent on health, um, tax dollars, um, and that'll just keep growing. Um, and so, uh, and then you go, well, you've got no tax dollars to spend on roads, no tax dollars to spend on schools because it's all being spent on healthcare. So it is a responsibility we have as leaders, uh, um, you know, to... Um, make sure that we're heading in the right direction around sustainable um, health. So is that, does that also, like, we've got an increasing population, we've got an ageing population, um, we've also got, you know, massive uh, problems with obesity, um, sort of those lifestyle diseases that are coming more and more to the fore. It's an area that I've been particularly interested in, childhood obesity and the, the consequences for later life, diabetes, all of those sort of nasty, horrible things. Um, do you see that, where do you see us in the future? Are we not going to be able to cope with the massive epidemics that are coming of us and the ageing of the population as well? Yeah, I mean, I don't really remember... Um the high school, we learned about someone called Malthus. Malthus said, you know, there's going to be a shortage of food and we're all doomed and uh, so we should just start, you know, practicing birth control and um, uh, recognize we're um, on borrowed time. Um, so another guy who won an econ economist prize called um, uh, Robert Salow and um, he said, look, actually, we're pretty clever. We keep innovating. We keep thinking about doing things differently. Uh, and we keep changing, um, and, uh, and 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 because of that, uh, we'll be able to figure our way out of doing this. So, um, you know, if you look at uh, many things that once upon a time would have had an operation, they can now do an MRI and they can have a look. So um, we've seen more recently um, some decision criteria around appendicectomies. We've seen a 20% drop in our appendix, uh, and 90% um, of the patients who they operate on actually have an appendicitis. So um, that's smart people yep. using logic. Um, that's something to do with the technology around diagnostic um, capability. So we can see a lot of the things that um, uh, have changed care um, and how that um, innovation is able to be applied in, to a much broader population for a much cheaper. Once upon a time, it was only done in one, one hospital in New Zealand. Now it's just done everywhere. Um, with that comes cost. Um, but... 
if we reflect on the broader issue in terms of people living longer, um, is um, how do we ensure that they live longer and more independently? Um, and so one of the things we've done at counties is we've worked really hard to um, not be the person that says we will provide support forever for somebody or support them in residential care. We're saying, what are your goals? Well, if it's to live in your own home, we'll help you to get back to a level of independence. Um, and so as a result, our cost for residential care, our cost for um, community support have grown, but not like many of the other parts of the country. Um, so uh, in sum, I think you can um, do something about it, um, but it is about uh, having the right strategy and looking at evidence in terms of what's working um, uh, and having good, smart people who um, uh, able to lead a lot of that work. So. That strategic sort of thinking. And the, I suppose like with the, the massive breakthroughs that are coming at us with technology um, and we're seeing things you know, happening at a really rapid rate now, um, that's going to out. That's going to counterbalance some of the the yeah the numbers game that's going to come at us, isn't it? Um, you yeah. will be able to diagnose better. You will be able to prevent more. The drugs will get better. The, the technologies, the operations are certainly much more sophisticated. Um, so taking an optimist, let's go with the optimist view that we're <laughs> uh, humans are really good at adapting and 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 dealing with a situation that's coming. It's not all doom and gloom. Then looking looking forward. Yeah, I mean, I think when we're looking at our bed occupancy rate in our hospital, um, we've had uh, a very small percentage increase in numbers of occupied beds. And a lot of that's down to um, us. Uh, so population growth, quite substantial. Um, mm -hmm. And yet um, the actual hospital has not had the pressure. Um, there is some now, um, but um, because we've been able to deliver services differently. So simple thing. Out of the 120,000 patients who turn up in our ED, 20% of them come back three or more times. Um, so simply by us looking at that 3% and saying, okay, well, what went wrong last time? What did we miss out on? Um, we've seen that number um, half, 50% um, reduction on those patients presenting three or more times. Um, so I, can, I put it back down to um, uh, ambition from leaders, leadership in terms of uh, uh, you know, what what, and where do you want to go? Uh, and I put it back to uh, using solid, you know, research in it and, but also saying to people, um, you know, what are the things we haven't thought of and being quite innovative um, that, uh, you know, maybe it's applied in other industries or maybe um, some people have got ideas that we haven't tapped into. So uh, I think a lot of my success has been just listening to what people have to say and giving uh, then the support to achieve it. So I look at a busy doctor who's got a great idea or a busy nurse. Um, they haven't always got time to sit down and try and draw up a whole plan in terms of where they want to get to. So what we do at counties, and we and it's done in other health systems in um, uh, New Zealand, is we say, right, we'll give you a pregnant people, we'll give you a data and analyst, um, and we'll give you project support. Uh, and so we'll take your good idea and we'll turn it into something that, um, you know, we can test and try. Um, and um, and then from there we can then scale it out and then use it um, much more broadly. So the example I would use would be our stroke patients used to spend an awful long time in hospital. Uh, we've now halved the length of time that they would spend in hospital by um, significantly increasing our community team uh, to provide rehab in uh, a community setting. Uh, and we've seen uh, our outcomes, and we compare, um, it's called a FIM score, um, that is uh, is as good as um, is better than most. Um, so, yeah, so that's a, that's a fantastic. I think yeah, there's definitely some some improvements there. So, when is like and going back to this the um, rehabilitation centre or, or what, what do you call it, spinal centre? When is that going to be operational, or is that already operating? Um, and what sort of uh, so it's it, it's looking at an integrated so it's got spinal you got stroke but you're also going to have athletes um, and general yeah. public in there. How's that? How's that look? You know, where is where is that going to be based? And how's that? So at the moment, it's um, uh, sort of at the business case stage. It's got regional support uh, and it's got um, some level of uh, signal support from ACC and the Ministry of Health. We've still got a lot of decision processes and a lot of um, stage gaps to go through before we get there. So what we have um, is uh, what what we describe, sort of think, um, if you've got um, health land 
and you've got uh, facilities that you need for um, rehabilitation. You need swimming pool, you need gyms, you need, you know, some of that's um, uh, not used at certain times of the day. It could be used for the local sports group. Um, mm -hmm. We've also got uh, running through our property uh, a a stream and so we're talking to the park services uh, to the council and saying well can we look at a um, uh, sporting facilities uh, some running tracks walking tracks uh, and then that would lead through to a um, community-based living well center which would um, hopefully have that additional uh, uh, community rehab access uh, and then there would be the in inpatient uh, very complex specialized uh, rehabilitation covering off a range of different injuries um, for counties and also supporting uh, the wider region. Um, so we're at a stage now where we've sort of drafted up what we think. Uh, we've um, got uh, sports people, we've had para, you know, the parafed team, we've had um, uh, a lot of our um, consumers, we've said what do you think, what would you like uh, and what's been very um, clear is that um, uh, someone who's recovering from an injury actually would find it uh, after they um, uh, get back uh, their sense of, um, okay, forward momentum, yep. Uh, yep. But surrounded by people who are uh, achieving, pushing boundaries, um, they have said would be fantastic yeah. and they wish they had it. They said it was very lonely and it was, you, you'd been hit by, you know, a bus and then you woke up and you felt like you had no life left to live. Yep. Uh, so being surrounded by people who had life and it was full and enjoyable, um, albeit with challenges, was something that they felt would be really positive. Yeah, I can I can totally, I'd love to see that. I'd love to have had access to that um, and just to get out of the hospital, the, the, the you know, the, the acute ill stage and to be back into life and to be back into recovery and to be back into hope and pushing. And when you see other people training hard and working hard and, and other injured people, and it's it's very much a, um, a supportive network then that you can build and where it's a positive in the community living i think the the worst thing for for us i think was the fact that uh with with mum uh, when she was she was in hospital for three months um that feeling like you were institutionalized i mean she had to be there was no there was no option at that stage but that feeling of losing control of your life and then um the, the the prognosis would you know or they wanted her to be put into a rest home and we really fought against that and I'm so so glad we did um, because the rest home would never have been able to give us the level of support the love the care the you know round the clock um, care that she would get at at home and the, the biggest thing that what um, we came up goes is you will not cope you will not cope with someone who's 24 seven care. Uh, two people um, and, and we didn't know but we we were like well we're going to go down fighting if we're going to go down <laughs> and we, we want to try that because when you are in the family or in a community-based setting or in your family home you recover a hundred times better than you you would and that's no um, that's no not a not a reflection on the on the level of care in the rest homes or anything it's just that the, the sheer numbers game you know if you've got a hundred patients uh, versus you know a family that can and wants to look after one single patient you you know you're going to get a different level of of care and, and support so I see that but I think that's magic um, you know, where where you there's been studies that have looked at people who had major conditions that you know we didn't cure but they had to manage for quite some time and what they reflected was that um you know hospitals think that they are um a major determinant of what happens to the person uh what they what most people reflected was that um after they left hospital that was where the biggest challenge occurred uh and uh they felt often um, lacking in support, lacking in mm. uh, you know the technical know-how, and, and and quite lost. Um, so that's where the family support is so key. But also it is uh, the broader lens that health services need to have, which are around how do we support people um, ongoing rather than um, you're in a hospital now, so you know you figure it out. Yeah. And I think um, you know your point. Um, we accept um, uh, uh, the limitations that other people put on us. Um, and uh, we feel that that's you know good for people. I think um, if we have a challenge, 
you know, um, Death Valley for you, maybe um, walked, walked <laughs> up the hill for me. Um, uh, that's um, something which a lot of us go, well, you know, actually that won't make us happy. That'll be, uh, why would you want to do that? Um, mm. But, um, you know, there was a study um, that uh, somebody did, um, a guy called Mihai sent Mihai, and basically he text 18 year olds and he said to them tell, tell us about your time when you're most happy and uh, tell us what you're doing and he texts them 10 times during the daytime now um, apart from the obvious one of the things that they found was that they were doing things that required a challenge uh, and required effort and skill um, uh, was where they were most happy, most happy. and so yep. we kind of go well oh, no, we should look after someone who's old and frail and you know just let them s- just take it easy and we'll be kind to them <laughs> in actual fact um uh, all of us are wired to um, uh, uh, just get some sense of accomplishment, even if it's just walking to the letterbox or if it's, you know, a little bit further, a little bit more. Exactly. Um, and then we start to feel better about ourselves and more ready to keep going. And so uh, I do think uh, I've seen it, particularly with different cultures, uh, is that whole thing of um, when I was trying to do rehabilitation in, in India and we were trying to set up the stroke service, um, people would feed people, they would uh, get them to do, they would, you know, dress them, they would, and they actually, a lot of it the person could do themselves. You're enabling them, so, yep, to, to not recover, yep. So, I mean, oh, sorry to interrupt you there, but yeah, I think that that's, that's a total, like, I am um, often, when I'm taking mum around in town and we're walking, and she's obviously still very slow and, and, and very, you know, fragile, um, a lot of the comments often are, why, why would you do that? Why don't you just put her in the wheelchair and wheel her around? But if I do that, then I'm, I'm, I'm taking away her dignity when she wants to fight, when she wants to walk. And yes, it's a challenge. And sometimes we, we push too hard and we have to sit down in the mall somewhere and go, crikey, we'll have to um, get enough breath together to get back <laughs> to the car. Um, but by pushing her and making her do everything, I think it's far, she's learning more. And when I, when I take away that um, from her and I do to make it easier for her because it's, we, we want to make her comfortable and we want to make it easy. By making things comfortable and easy, in my experience in life, is you n- don't get stronger, you don't push your limits, you don't challenge yourself, and you enable weakness, basically. And that's, and that's in from when you're children or whether you're dealing with, with sick people or whether you're dealing with athletes. The more you make them do things, the more you challenge them, the more you push them, obviously within the realms of what is sensible and you know dealing with neural fatigue and things like that that you can't overcome, but not taking away the chance to try. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. Is, is absolute crucial. You you get a hundred percent more out of people. I mean, I've just started a hyperbaric oxygen therapy clinic. I think I told you, Philip, um, mm-hmm. a few just mm-hmm. in the last couple of months, and so we've only just started this. And this was uh, come about after um, just for the listeners, after having mum with her uh, situation and finding it hugely beneficial for her. Um, and the cases that we're getting are a lot of stroke people, a lot of concussions, um, you know, people that are in dire straits and, and, and needing a lot of help. And without a doubt, even if the hyperbaric can't help them, the people walk out of the, the clinic, well, this is my goal, they walk out of the clinic feeling stronger, more courageous, more hopeful than when they walked in. Um, with, you know, and I'm hoping that in, in their case, it's not always in their case that the hyperbaric will, will help, it will be beneficial to them. But if I can give them the courage to keep fighting, if I can give them that, that sense of, yes, well, we're going to fight this together or we're going to give this a go and don't give up and keep fighting and, you know, go against the odds. Don't Don't accept... You know, as long as you're alive, one of my favourite things, as long as you're alive, you keep fighting. You know, as long as you're breathing, you fight. Um, and I think that that's an empowering message. I, I know we're all going to die, and I know <laughs> there are some people you can't save. Um, but it, to, to, to stand by someone who's suffering and saying, well, let's give this a, a crack, or have you thought of this, or um, look at so-and-so's done that, uh, is more empowering than, you know, just giving up. Yeah, I think um, uh, the point of um, us being owner drivers as well, I think um, uh, when uh, there's a good book that I enjoy by, written by a guy called Daniel Pink, and he talks about um, 
motivation, what motivates us. Um, and he talks about autonomy, mastery and purpose. You know, if we are in charge, well, I'm in charge of myself. Um, I want to grow in my own sense of comp- competence in living and dealing with my disability. Uh, and uh, I want to do something that has purpose in my life. Um, and there's some work around the blue zone that says old people um, or, you know, people who feel like they're able to help others or help the community actually uh, or connected with others uh, will live on average 15 years longer. Wow. Um, so, you know, that sense, all of those things are things that uh, if you resign and, you know, just say that's it, yep. uh, I can't keep going. You miss out on in terms of um, realising the benefit of um being independent uh, and growing in a sense of uh, I, I didn't used to be able to do this. And for many people, it's like uh, cleaning your teeth or, you know, um, mm. but now, now I can. Um, uh, and so. Um, the smallest things, aren't they? The smallest yeah, improvements. Right. You know, you celebrate those small improvements and, and you reflect back um, often on, hey, do you remember like two months ago you couldn't do that and now you're doing it? And, and I think that, 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 that constant barrage of, of confidence building um, is crucial in any rehab, um, no matter what sort of issues you're facing. Um, yeah. Now, if I, Philip, can we go back to um, Qatar? I'm really cool. interested, yeah. really interested in what that was all about. And this is a little bit left field, as we've been talking about uh, counties and, and so on. But um, uh, when I met you, you, you told me a little bit about Qatar and what you did there. And, and uh, yeah, just fill us in with that. What was that like compare, compared to <laughs> so, where, what we have here and, and what's what's available? Yeah, um, so Qatar, um, in, I've got a picture of it on my wall, um, in 1950 had about 50,000 people living there. Um, it is incredibly hot, uh, and um, most it's 10,000 square kilometres, and I think the highest area in the whole um, place is about 100, 100 metres. Um, so in other words, it's a, a flat um, uh, piece of sand, it sticks out in the Arabian Peninsula, um, that happens to have the second highest GDP in the world, oh. um, uh, probably the highest actually, and... Um, uh, was was voted by Lonely Planet about 2010 as the most boring place um, in the planet. Um, <laughs> now, actually, um, you know, the group there have worked to uh, make it a destination. And one of the things that they wanted to do, and they um, uh, um, felt it would be really important to grow sports and high-performance sports. And so um, they hosted the Asian Games and they had their heart set on hosting the FIFA uh, games which they have now um, uh, achieved. Um, we won't say too much, but I think um, uh, they had a vision a long time ago, um, uh, and uh, it was very much around creating world-class hospital, world-class sports uh, academy, and world-class um, sports uh, clinical teams. Um, so Bruce Hamilton, who's on the Institute of Sports uh, in New Zealand here, uh, leads that. Um, uh, the head of the Olympic Medical uh, Committee, a guy called Peter Fowler, um, and um, many of the um, sports doctors who were linked with some of the top-performing um, uh, teams from around the world, um, Barcelona, AC Milan, um, uh, Handball, Yugoslavia, you know, the list goes on. Um, and and that included um, uh, rehabilitation specialists and included surgeons, included some of the top um, uh, physios, Chelsea, um, uh, MU, um, and uh, so we brought them in and we created a, a hotel. Um, the, our guest services manager from was the Burj Al Arab Hotel in Dubai. Mm-hmm. Um, we had um, chef from the Shangri-La Hilton in um, Shanghai, and um, uh, it's a good place to be. We had altitude <laughs> dorms, 48 altitude dorms. Wow. Um, and so we had um, sports teams that would come in, uh, we had uh, at Manchester United, we had um, the Chinese swimming team, the Dutch cycling team. Uh, and so we had um, fitness uh, and we were next to a, something called Aspire Academy, um, which had some of New Zealand coaches, Jeff Hunt, squash, Peter Lester, sailing, uh, Australian basketball coach. And they had the World Indoor Olympics um, hosted in that site. Uh, so it was part of the Asian Games, wow. which had about three three billion people attending. So... Um, our job was to um, support. We had um, uh, 
uh, humidity chambers, we had temperature chambers. So athletes that were preparing, we'd get them ready. Uh, and also um, prescriptions for nutrition and a range of other things um, when they were going off to uh, compete, you know, different parts of the world. Um, and uh, and the, um, there's something called the Milk Cup, which is the under-16, kind of like the Club Cup. Um, and the Qatar won that when I was there, when, in, uh, after I left in 2011. Um, uh, so they went from a country of 2.5 million people um, having a sports academy starting uh, at age seven, I think, and they would um, go through uh, to finishing school. Uh, they would have this academic program in the morning and then sports uh, prior to that and after that, uh, and they were able to grow. Uh, so, so when you look at the uh, performance of New Zealand team uh, in football against teams like Qatar and they do well, uh, you uh, have to acknowledge, I suppose, um, quite a different context in terms of the um, uh, level of support that the athletes would get there. <laughs> so this is money, no object sort of a place, really. Money, right? no object, that's right. That's <laughs> what, right. It, what it must be fabulous to be able to work in a setting like that and, and to work with, with athletes of that calibre and to, to, you know, be able to throw everything at it. Um, did you see some amazing, incredible performances come out of the, you know, like your altitude uh, dorms and things? That must have been an incredible uh, exciting yeah, I experience. think, um, and as you well know, um, you know, sleeping at uh, high altitudes and uh, exercising at low um, yeah. means that you um, don't slow down. You don't have your two to three weeks hiatus because you can't uh, uh, exercise because you're short of breath. Um, but you get similar benefits uh, and um, in, in a multitude of ways, fast twitch muscles, uh, storage of energy, greater mitochondria, you know, lots yeah, of, lots of things that, yep. you know, yeah. Uh, and so um, uh, people would come in for, for that reason, and it's become something much more predominant. There is some facility here in Auckland, but it, it hasn't been set up that I can see in a way which would be similar to that scale. Um, the challenge we had, we had uh, started people off at about 3,000 metres and moved them up to five, and it was normal pressure, so, um, it was, so it was just hypoxia that we would work on. Um, and... Um, lots of rules around uh, young children and various other things. So yeah, was... I could have done with some guidance there when I had... <laughs> when I when I had a hypoxic tent that I slept in every night before I went to the Himalayas for a race and uh, slept in it at six and a half thousand meters every night for <laughs> for like two two weeks and then everything crashed and ended up with a hypoxic brain concussion and uh, and the bacteria in the body going absolute wild. Um, yeah, I yeah. didn't I didn't have the oversight. <laughs> I just... uh, that's right. <laughs> and I think we had physiologists, we had psychologists, you know, we had, uh, and again, um, uh, the uh, benefit of having a sports academy that had uh, all of those things, you know, as part of the package. Um, what a and, fantastic and, and also had research to go with it. Um, uh, the humidity chamber was pretty amazing. I mean, you could just dial up the humidity to whatever level Correct. and get people to, you know, perform as well on that. I could have done with that before Death Valley, I tell you. <laughs> you can go and, and train in the heat. Well, you, over there, you just have to run out in the desert and you'll be right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I do think, um, uh, you know, it's all, I think, again, comes back to ambition. Um, what, what do we have? What more could we have? Um, and how do we support our athletes to perform uh, when you're dealing with that level of investment in another part of the world? Um, obviously, we're going to struggle, but, um, you know, um, mm. the, it, it's quite a deliberate process in some of those countries to get um, to the level of performance that they have. Well, they're not um, they're not silly. They, they they use what they have got, and they have got a lot of money, obviously, over there. So, um, but how do you like? How was the juxtaposition for you then, coming back? You know, from from these high performance sports and in, in, in a place where money's no object, and then coming to back to back home. Um, and after seeing the American situation and the way their clinicals uh, or hospitals are run there, um, it must have been a bit of a culture shock all the way around, really. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I um, believe life's too short to do what I have to do. It's barely long enough to do what I want to do. <laughs> um, and so, you know, for me, um, work is... Um, about finding a place that you enjoy and you feel like you're achieving something. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, with Qatar, we had it set up. It was in full swing in terms of the service and what was happening. Uh, so the opportunity to come back uh, and work 
I think New Zealand's the real deal. Um, we've got a real opportunity in terms of showing the rest. I'm on the board for the Health Roundtable. Um, we do benchmarking of 150 hospitals across Australia and New Zealand. Um, and, and the real deal is how do you get the system to perform? Um, so it's not about counties or the organisation, but how do you get people to manage themselves and have healthy, full lives? Mm. Uh, how do we close the gap? You know, we've still got a gap in 10 years, uh, you know, between uh, Māori and we've got about eight yeah. years, nine years between Pacific. Um, and I, and so I don't think we've cracked the code yet in some of those areas. Mm. We've got really great um, uh, clinicians, really great people doing great things, but um, we still haven't... Um, so, so for me, coming back to work uh, in a large organisation and being involved in um, as part of a leadership team um, to uh, get it to work better, I think is is rewarding. And and so, um, I uh, love the environment um, and um, enjoyed the lunches um, <laughs> uh, and uh, meeting lots and lots of fascinating, interesting people. Um, but also uh, was very mindful of the fact, um, just as you described with your mother, that many people don't get access, don't yeah. get the opportunity, yeah. and it's everyday events. Uh, and actually, um, if we do things better and more deliberately uh, and help them realise their ambitions, uh, and that may be to walk to the letterbox, um, then well. actually, you know, it's a more um, uh, fuller life for them and their family. So, and that's just as uh, rewarding as, as in any Olympic athlete isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think in, in valuing, uh, you know, every, every single person and, and you know, what, 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 um, since, since I met you down in uh, Dunedin, I met Philip uh, for the listeners down there um, at a distinguished alumni um, evening. And after our conversation, I was absolutely amazed at your openness to listen to other people's Input because I mean you're 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 you know you're top CEO with with thousands and thousands of people under you a budget that's you know um, unbelievable for most of us um, responsibility that's that's huge and yet you would sit there at the table with us and hear our, our you know from from everyone around the table and listen to our opinions on this and that obviously you know um, which I found really uh, refreshing and the uh, an attitude of so. You're very real. You really want to make a difference. You really, I can feel the, your passion. You're wanting to learn. You're, 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 you're wanting to take on everything that was being said by whoever little little Joe who comes to talk to you for five minutes. Um, and and I think that that's so refreshing in management, and that's so refreshing in the hospital, <laughs> um, you know, uh, world um, to have to have someone of that of that disposition. Um, hey, thank, thank you, Lisa. I mean, I think um, what, um, you know, the uh, reality for me is there's not one person who's any more important than anybody else. Mm. Um, and um, each of us have a unique perspective, a unique view and something to uh, contribute. Um, and I think uh, what um, the mistake is from leaders, and I've seen it happen again and again, is uh, some people think that they have all the ideas and they're the smartest people in the room. Uh, by doing that or being that, you miss out on all the other ideas that uh, exist. And so um, uh, somebody was talking about when they went to visit the Prime Minister of uh, England and they left the room thinking that what a smart, incredibly clever person. And they met Desiree, who was leader of the opposition, and they left thinking, I'm incredibly smart and I'm incredibly uh, talented. And they um, thought there's a difference. And, and there's quite a lot on how to make people think, how to, you know, or how to support people to think and contribute. So a lot of my success has not been about um, me being the smartest person in the room. It's been about me having the willingness to listen uh, and value, you know, the different perspectives. Um, I think also... Um, yeah, positivity, I get it from you as well, you know, um, there are challenges, life is difficult, there are mm -hmm. lots of things that will run us over, and I think, you know, I reflect on my conversation with you around some of the big challenges you had, yep. Uh, yep. but you kept going, and you kept going with a level of positive, uh, I, I will, I will yep. achieve this, yep. I'm determined to, and I think that, you know, we kind of have it, life in New Zealand is a good life, um, and we were lucky to be born here, um, 
uh, you know, I just went to India over summer and you uh, think of some of the challenges of people growing up with, Absolutely. you know, if you're poor. Um, and yes, we face challenges, but I do think uh, a belief that we can uh, uh, achieve things in New Zealand, we can go places, we can do things, uh, but it comes back to, uh, you know, that sense of um, what do I want to do? What's the purpose of why I'm here? What's the purpose of my life and, you know, making a difference? But I think the, the thing for me for leadership is if you're authentic, you're genuine, I, I have a purpose uh, and I uh, believe what I do is not a job. It's actually, it's uh, it has a much more significant thing than just what my salary is or what my name is. Absolutely. Um, uh, then uh, a lot of the leadership, um, you don't need to... Uh, be different things in different places because you'll just come across as being someone who's genuine and real and uh, that people can trust. Yeah, well, that, uh, that, and, that and, comes yeah. through. That comes yeah. through. And in your willingness to collaborate and to think, you know, um, integratively, from what, you know, the research that I've done before this interview too, that what comes across again and again and again is the, the willingness to bond together to integrate systems, to hold, you know, what would be opposing uh, arguments in, in your head uh, and to bring people together rather than to divide. Um, and I think that is the mark of, of, a, of a great leader. Um, and I think counties Manukau are pretty lucky to have you up there. And if you want to come to the Taranaki DHB, um, <laughs> we'd be glad to have you. <laughs> Thank. Hey, thanks, Lisa. Um, you've got a good CEO down there. I know well, um, and I think, um, uh, but I do think it comes back down to again, um, uh, people having uh, the support. And I still think we've got a long way to go um, to give them the support. You know, some of the challenges mm -hmm. you had with your mother yep. Um, yep. Uh, to realise their potential with their disease, with their life. Um, uh, and I think, uh, so that's, you know, what gets me up in the morning. We've still got a long way to go. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and it's so much more now about uh, people having control of their own destiny than it is about uh, this brief period of time for two days that they have in hospital. Oh, um, that's so, that's, how do we help that trajectory? Um, yeah. I think, that, yeah, you're definitely on onto something there. And, and um, uh you know, I'd be so keen to, to stay in touch and, and to learn more and to see how you're going in, in, in the future and what happens with your, your, your new centre up there. Um, yeah, and likewise, Lisa, I think um, it'd be great. I mean, I think, you know, what you're describing is how do you motivate people? How do you encourage them? And I think it'd be great to have you linked in with the work we're doing uh, in whatever shape or form because I think um, people realising the challenges, not quite Death Valley, but... Um, it's a pretty big challenge in terms of whatever they're facing. Oh, yeah. Uh, to keep going and to have people like you that could inspire them would be really great. Oh, love to. Love to be involved in any way, uh, shape or possible. Um, look, Philip, like I've taken a lot of your very precious time this evening from your family, no doubt. Um, so thank you very much for sharing this. I, I hope that the listeners are really um, appreciative of um, you know the calibre of, of man we have had on this show today um, to give us an insight into New Zealand's health system, a little bit into Qatar, into what the the the, the high the high um, flying world is over there, um, and to give us a very unique insight that a lot of people have no idea of what happens behind the scenes. So thank you very much, Philip, for being on the show today. Hey, thank you, Lisa. Thank you for the encouragement and thank you for the work that you're doing and. Um, uh, wish you well and your listeners as well. That's it for this episode of Pushing the Limits with your host, Lisa Tamati. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and share all this goodness with your networks so we can impact more lives with positive insights and inspiring conversations. And check us out online at www.lisatamati.co.nz. That's it for this episode of Pushing the Limits with your host, Lisa Tamati. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and share all this goodness with your networks so we can impact more lives with positive insights and inspiring conversations. And check us out online at www.lisatamati.co.nz.